from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The air is awful right now in Detroit and several other places. Canadian wildfires are producing smoke and haze that have created a pall thick enough to aggravate both sight and breath. This is about the weather. But the weather is a function of much more complicated climate dynamics. We're going to talk today about those dynamics and what they mean for the future of our air quality. We'll also talk with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell about new gun legislation she's introducing. That's all next in On Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you've decided to join us today. I want to start today with a story about when I was a young journalist in my first job at a newspaper in Kentucky. While I was there, I spent a lot of time going to really remote places in eastern Kentucky, a place where geographic isolation really defines a lot of life, but also where coal is king. And I have really vivid memories of the trip to these furthest reaches of that part of Appalachia, where highways take you up and down the mountains rather than through them, where the wealth of coal deposits make tunneling a, quote, waste of valuable resources. When you're driving and are at the top of these mountains, you can see down into the valleys where the cities and the towns lie. But you could only really see that in summer. In winter, people in that part of the country burn coal in stoves in their homes to keep warm. And that coal creates this really thick cloud of dust and soot that would obscure just about everything in sight. Haze was what you could see, and just about nothing else. I remember it because it was such a stark introduction, for me at least, to the long-term damaging effects that industry and heat can have on our environment. The things we do in the world have an effect on the world that we have to live in. Almost overnight, that kind of experience has become similar to what we are living with right now in Michigan and Canada. It's having unbelievable effects on all of us. Maybe your eyes have become irritated. Maybe your throat is a little itchy. Maybe you're not breathing so well. Or like me, you have a constant low-grade headache. It's not for nothing. The National Weather Service extended its air quality alert in Michigan through today because the air quality index, at least here in Detroit, has hovered between 151 and 200. And at times, the city has been moving toward the next worst category between 201 and 300. Above 301 on that index, the air is considered toxic, unable for us to breathe safely. And all of this is happening amid new research on the toxicity of air pollution. According to scientists at Boston College, air pollution can harm health across the entire lifespan. It causes disease, disability, and death. It impairs everyone's quality of life. It damages lungs, hearts, brains, skins, and other organs. And it increases the risk of disease and disability, affecting virtually all of the system's in the human body. So we have a good reason to be really concerned about what's going on. When you wake up and can't see the skyline here in Detroit because of the haze. When you choke, when you walk down the street or exert yourself in any way outside because the air is so bad. 
we know why we have this air pollution right now. These Canadian wildfires are causing smoke and haze to waft our way. But beyond the immediate reason for this, there's a climate context behind all of it, the way that climate is changing. And that makes us have to ask a lot of questions about life and how we sustain it. How do we stay safe? And what can we do to prevent this from becoming a constant in our lives? That's where we begin the conversation today with the air outside, what it looks like, what it feels like to breathe, and what it might be doing to us. And to talk about it, we've got two really great guests. Dr. Carly Phillips is a research scientist with the Science Hub for Climate Litigation with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She has studied the intersection between wildfires and climate change. Dr. Phillips, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Christina Floyd. She is the acting chief public health officer for the city of Detroit. Christina. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So I want to start with you, Christina, and talk about what's going on right now. What is the quality of uh, the, the air in Detroit today, and how is the city communicating with residents about what they should be doing, what they should not be doing, how they should be reacting to what's going on? Thank you for that question, Stephen. And yes, currently we are at an unhealthy um, range of our air quality index, and that's going to be throughout the entire day. Um, you talk about the importance of uh, the air quality, and right now, and you talked about the haze uh, in certain areas that are closer to downtown. Uh, you see the haze more, you feel more um, of the impact of uh, the particulate matter uh, with regards to your sneezing and your coughing uh, and headaches. And so um, the question of, you know, what really is the impact and is it serious? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, for those not just with uh, respiratory illnesses or uh, our senior population or pregnant vulnerable populations, um, it impacts everyone's well-being. Uh, and so uh, the health department, we are encouraging everyone uh, to really limit their time outdoors, uh, ensuring that their windows are closed uh, in their vehicles uh, as well as uh, in their homes. Uh, if you are outside and you have to be for uh, long periods of time, especially our, you know, our city employees and other employees that work outside, uh, we really encourage wearing masks, uh, either limit or eliminate outdoor activities that can be done indoors uh, until the air quality is at a level where uh, it's safe for everyone. So we, yeah, go ahead, oh, go ahead, go ahead and finish. Oh, Oh, so as the health department, we have used uh, Delert, uh, Detroit Alert 365 to provide information uh, on various platforms. Uh, we also have used our social media uh, platforms along with uh, press releases to ensure that we're really getting uh, the information out to the community in a timely manner. So I, I do want to talk about the timing of the alerts here in Detroit. Uh, there was a Facebook alert that was put out on Tuesday at 10 a.m., but it really wasn't until Wednesday morning that we got um, uh, full press releases from the city. Uh, at 9 and I think at 11, uh, we finally got this 365 alert. Uh, there are a lot of folks who were asking questions about why it took so long for the city to react to this and, uh, and whether it put Detroiters in more jeopardy than they, than they needed to be. Uh, what happened with those uh, alerts? Yes, so we do understand uh, the importance of being able to have the information out uh, much earlier. We did, in fact, uh, follow really the guidelines uh, and our protocols of being able to issue the alert uh, from our um, main source, uh, which is the Michigan Department of State Health Services uh, Eagle Department. Uh, and so when we uh, 
were then notified that it was going to be for more than several days and extended, uh, we made sure that we didn't send out that notification. Uh, it was at around about 9, 10 or so uh, the next day, uh, but we did want to make sure that that information was conveyed um, appropriately uh, to the masses. So, so, I mean, one of the things that I think is on people's minds is whether the city was taking its own initiative or enough of its own initiative to make sure that Detroiters knew what was going on. Uh, you, you, you mentioned EGLE, uh, the statewide uh, environmental uh, uh, department here, and, and what they were doing. Does, does it make sense for Detroit to take its cues from EGLE for that, or should we have been, I mean, just looking outside even or, or, or acting on uh, the information that everybody had to, to be able to say, look, don't go outside today. Uh, I, I think there's still this question about what took so long to make sure people knew. Yes, and I, I agree with that question. Uh, we did uh, realize that we should have probably done it sooner, and that's why we ensure that uh, moving forward, we did, in fact, have the communication out, uh, but not just one form of communication, various forms of communication uh, to the community, and then also um, the protocols to uh, stay safe as well within those various communications, not just yesterday, but then also uh, today, understanding that it's still extended. And so in the future, are there things that will change about the way we do this? Are there things that the city will take under different consideration, I guess, about when and how to make sure people know what's really going on with the air? Yes. Uh, like I said, we actually um, immediately changed our uh, risk communications protocol. Uh, so, for instance, today we were able to have the notifications sent out um, roughly around 7 or 8 a.m. this morning mm -hmm. uh, to ensure that everyone was aware that it still continues until tomorrow and moving forward. Uh, we are uh, able to have those out um, in a fairly timely manner. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Christina, I really do appreciate uh, you being here and answering these questions. I know uh, things are pretty stressful right now about uh, how, to, how to deal with this. Uh, Dr. Phillips, I want to bring you into the conversation here and have you draw for us the connection between these wildfires and Canada and climate change. We have had wildfires in North America for time immemorial. But there's something different about what's happening now. And I think it's important to, to draw the distinction, uh, I guess, between what we're seeing happen um, and why it's happening. In other words, uh, that this, when we talk about climate and climate change, we talk about the difference between weather and climate. This is about climate, uh, even though what's, what's happening in front of us is the weather itself. Uh, can, you, can you help us understand that? Definitely. And I, I think you're exactly right that wildfires have been happening across North America for millennia. But what we know from the research that's been coming out recently is that whatever way you measure it, whether it be the severity of a fire, area burned, or the length of the fire season, we know that wildfires are getting worse across the world. And that's definitely true for Canada right now. They have had an exceptionally dry spring and summer, which has created the conditions that can allow these large fires to erupt. Um, we know that there's been about 20 million acres burned in Canada this year, um, 8 million hectares roughly. And that's more than double um, the last largest fire season, which was in 2021 mm -hmm. um, and has surpassed the worst fire season on record um, by almost a million acres. And so this is this is a really extreme um, event that we're seeing. And we know that it's connected to these drying and warmer conditions that we're seeing as a result of climate change. And then it also, of course, feeds into uh, the heat, the trapping of of heat on the planet and the things that have changed about the air and air quality 
uh, and the environment in places like Detroit. So it's not just that the smoke and the haze from the fires is coming here. It's that the environment to to kind of deal with uh, that smoke and the haze is is really different as well. Yeah, exactly. And we know that these wildfires are releasing huge amounts of carbon as well and are exacerbating climate change and making it worse. Um, but like you said, it's hard to talk about these fires without talking about climate change. And it's also hard to talk about climate change without talking about the burning of fossil fuels. And so I think that connection is also important to make in terms of why we're seeing this drying and why we're seeing this warming. Yeah. Uh, there are people who doubt that climate change is the reason that this is happening. There are people who doubt that fossil fuels and the burning of fossil fuels are the reason that the climate is changing. Uh, I get annoyed sometimes with, I think, uh, the, the denial of fact in that conversation that, that often defines it. But, but I, I also think it's important to, to make the case when we do discuss it. Dr. Phillips, tell me why you can assert with confidence that this is what's happening, that this is about climate change and that uh, the climate change that we're seeing is driven by our use of fossil fuels. There are multiple lines of evidence um, that show that climate change is driving what we're seeing, whether it be the rapid increase of CO2 in our atmosphere, whether it be the isotopic signature, right, the molecular signature of that CO2 that shows that it's from burning fossil products. But I think in addition to that, it's important to note that this skepticism and denial that you're mentioning isn't coming out of nowhere. You know, skepticism is part of science, but disinformation is not. And what we know from research about the history of climate change and the history of this denial is that it was generated initially by the fossil fuel industry. They did research that showed how um, how their products were going to be damaging to the climate. But instead of acting on that research, they pivoted and created this disinformation campaign to mislead the public, delay climate action, and protect their profits. So while we, we do have the science, and I'm, I'm happy to go into that more if you'd like, um, that illustrates that climate change and the burning of fossil fuels are responsible for that climate change, there's also this additional layer of deliberate deception on the part of fossil fuels mm -hmm. that have gotten us to this place we're at right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we do need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Christina Floyd of the city of Detroit and Dr. Carly Phillips with the Science Hub for Climate Litigation. Uh, we'll also want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones. Give us a call and tell us how you're breathing these days. Uh, have you avoided going outside? Do you go outside and wear a mask or take some other precaution? Is all of this making you feel sick in some way? And of course, what do you think we should be doing? What is our collective effort best directed at to ensure that we have clean air. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET brings you news about your neighborhood. WDET plays music from the Motor City. WDET amplifies the voices in our community. WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined. We're talking about the air outside, a little different in the last few days than it has been uh, because of the Canadian wildfires that are still raging and still producing smoke and haze that is coming our way. It's 
trapped here more than it would be in the past. Uh, and that's created this incredible pall that we all see out the windows and that we all are breathing if we go outside. We've got a couple of guests here with us talking about it. Christina Floyd is Detroit's acting chief public health officer. And Dr. Carly Phillips is a research scientist with the Science Hub for Climate Litigation with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We also want to hear from you on the phones and on social. Give us a call and let us know what you make of all of this, uh, what you see out your windows, what you breathe in when you walk outside, and what we should be doing about it. How do we make sure that the air is clean? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Phillips, we were talking before the break about how we know this is about climate change, and, and, and I wanted to give you a little more time to talk about what that evidence is. I mean, and I don't want to give too much air, I think, to the idea that that um, uh, uh, that the skepticism uh, of this is is founded in in reality or fact. I think much of it is not. But I think I think it's worthwhile for us to talk about what those facts are, what it is that tells us with with an awful lot of certainty that what we're seeing is about climate change and that climate change is about our behavior. Yeah, I think the first thing to note is that we know that since the Industrial Revolution, when we started to burn fossil fuels, we know that concentrations of atmospheric CO2 have increased steadily and rapidly since then. And while there are points in Earth's history when there have been higher concentrations of CO2 in our atmosphere, those were times when humans did not exist yet. And so I think it's important to note that the the temperature increases that we're seeing now and the atmospheric uh, gas composition is really what's driving this. And we know that it is, you know, unprecedented in human history on Earth, which I think is the really important piece um, to note about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Before we get to uh, our callers, uh, I want to go back to uh, Christina Floyd uh, to talk a little more about what's going on here in Detroit. Uh, one of the things that is true in the city is that things look different in different parts of our city. Of course, we have industrial neighborhoods uh, that have poorer air quality in general than other parts of the city. Um, I I wonder what you can talk about from the city's perspective about how different this experience is for people, for instance, in Southwest versus Northwest Detroit uh, or or other areas and, and how the city's response is shaped by those differences. Yes, that is an excellent really way of painting the picture for Southwest Detroit, because unfortunately, as we know, um, that area has continued to be um, in an area that has already poor air quality. Uh, And so when you now um, exacerbate it with uh, the air from, the pollutant air from the wildfires, uh, it is very heavy uh, in that area uh, and you can uh, really see uh, the effects of it just like you say by looking outside um, where as before the smell um, the haze that was already there is now um, far more increasing especially as the temperature rises so uh, again we really make sure that uh, our communication to those people and those residents uh, in that area is that you know, your best um, way to protect yourself is really staying indoors. Um, but then also, again, ensuring that um, when you are outdoors and uh, with mask wearing, uh, that you are uh, wearing a mask that really is sufficient. You know, the same things uh, that we say during COVID is really uh, apropos for mask wearing now uh, and that they are fit snug so that it does not allow for the breathing in of the particular matter. So um, Northwest uh, 
it does look different. It is not as hazy as it would look uh, in Southwest, uh, but unfortunately, uh, it does not matter what part of the area, uh, the city that you're in, you're still impacted one way or another by um, the air quality. And so, our message really is the same across the board uh, mm -hmm. because we know that um, with uh, the health outcomes of the city of Detroiters, uh, we want to make sure that those who, uh, again, heart conditions, uh, respiratory illnesses, uh, young infants, pregnant women, and so on who are uh, of that vulnerable population category, uh, that they are really um, more equipped with the information to know to stay indoors. How do you stay safe? Because we know that their conditions can be exacerbated by the air quality even higher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's get started today with John in Pleasant Ridge. John, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Good, how um, are you? Uh, doing well, other than feeling like I have to stay inside because mm -hmm. of the smoke. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of things I'd like to say. One is um, I'd like to hear actual people say actual data. Like we know roughly how much oil and, and fossil fuels we're burning each year. We know roughly something about how much is being put into the atmosphere by the burning, say, up in Canada and in, in tropical burning in Africa and South America. And there's an argument that I've heard repeatedly that, no, it, the CO2 doesn't really come from fossil fuels. It comes from volcanoes, and it's uh, being put, it's coming from the ocean. Um, so I'd like to hear something about that, you know, just actual data said. Uh, and, and then um, another thing is we've – people have been concerned about this, I believe, since the middle of the 19th century when they figured out what the atmosphere was composed of and what we were doing to it and had predicted that this was going to happen a tremendously long time ago, and now it is. And uh, I guess the third thing is I have lived through this similar stuff to these fires in California. Mm. Um, after a couple of weeks of unrelenting smoke coming from several hundred miles away, I developed um, the kind of wheezing that, yeah. you know, with the and so, yeah, it, it, yeah. it has a direct effect. The danger is real, John. And and I, I'm going to say before we get back to our guests, stay inside. Uh, if you do go outside, take uh, real precautions. Wearing a mask is not a, a terrible idea. We all still have the mask that we were wearing during the pandemic. This is another great opportunity, I think, to put them to use. Uh, but but uh, Dr. Carly Phillips, I want to I come to you specifically to answer John's questions about CO2 and where it comes from. Uh, again, I think this is actually an, an, a, a really good inquiry about how we know, again, that, uh, that it's our burning of fossil fuels, our behavior that's causing this. How do we know again? Yeah, so I, I heard a couple of things in, in John's question. Um, the first in terms of where this CO2 is coming from and how, you know, natural variability from volcanoes and that sort of thing play into that. And that's definitely all part of our climate system. Um, but what we know from observations of temperature and of our atmosphere is that we're seeing this increase, this ramp up in temperature on top of that natural variability. So even though we have that natural natural variability in our system, we're seeing a steady increase despite that. And in terms of the, you know, the hard data, the the image that comes to mind for me is the Keeling curve, which is a measure of atmospheric carbon dioxide as taken from the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And what that shows us and it really captures this natural variability piece, is it shows us the steady increase of CO2 over time, but with dips and, you know, with basically hills and valleys showing the North American land sink taking up and releasing carbon. Mm -hmm. And so that is a, a great example of how we have that actual data, the measurements in the atmosphere. Um, and you can see that steady increase if you look at that graph at the Keeling curve. Yeah. Um, to see how that increase has happened and also how it's tracked on top 
um, of that natural variability that's part of our climate system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, I hope that's a, a good clarification for for you of, of again, this, this question that you have about how all this works. I also want to introduce another voice to the conversation here. Dr. Clara Zundel is a postdoctoral fellow in Wayne State's Think Lab and an expert on just about all things related to air pollution and the brain. Uh, Dr. Zundel, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, quickly, tell us what happens to our brains when air pollution goes up. I think this is part of uh, the equation that we don't talk too much about. We're really concerned about our lungs, of course, uh, but there is an effect on our minds uh, when, when we can't breathe clean air. What does that look like? Right, absolutely. So I study small particulates, which um, is one of the most prevalent pollutants in Detroit's air right now from the wildfires in Canada. Um, and those particulates are so small that they can actually pass right through our nasal tract and directly impact into our brains. Um, and so once those particles are, enter our brain, they can cause a host of changes, um, mostly immune changes and inflammation reactions, which can immediately impact the way that our brain functions. And there is a mental health uh, dimension to this as well, because it's our brains that are that are being affected. I wonder if you can talk to our listeners about that and, and how we should be prepared for and, and responding to it. Yeah. So um, there's been a, really an increase in research recently that has linked air pollution exposure to increases in anxiety or depression symptoms. Um, and so we don't really know how, what's happening in the brain to lead to that increased risk. And so that's what some of us neuroscientists are now focusing on. And we, we are we are leaning more towards that it's inflammation in the brain that causes these changes in emotion regulation brain regions that, that would help us to control those anxiety and depression symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Zundel, I really do appreciate you calling in and uh, sharing your knowledge about this uh, with our listeners as well. Let's go next to Skip in Farmington Hill. Skip, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I have a simple question. Could you or your guest please tell me what percentage of the atmosphere is CO2? Ah, interesting question. Uh, Dr. Phillips, what's the answer? Mm. That's not a percentage I know off the top of my <laughs> head, but I know it's, it's a pretty small percentage um, in terms of the total gas composition of the atmosphere, which is primarily nitrogen. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we break, uh, I, I want to give uh, both Christina Floyd and Dr. Phillips a chance to talk about what we should be doing, what we should be uh, thinking about changing, uh, not just in the short term, but in the long term. Uh, Christina, I'll, I'll start with you and, and the way in which we deal with this in the city of Detroit. Yes, I would say, you know, the good thing is we have a mayor uh, and a leadership of the city of Detroit that really focuses on uh, environmental justice. And so looking at ways to be able to ensure uh, as the mission of the health department that all Detroiters have an opportunity to thrive, that we say uh, and utilize our networks with Office of Sustainability uh, to work with neighborhoods and to work with our uh, residents to ensure that moving forward, um, the air quality of their homes, space, the air quality of the uh, business spaces are really uh, at a, a space where they can um, live and thrive healthy. Um, reason being, we know that this is not going to be the last time uh, we see these issues with regards to air quality. And so moving forward, being able to build uh, the city's capacity uh, to, uh, in the future, respond to um, air quality and uh, climate uh, and environmental factors that uh, could change. And so uh, that's what we're working on. Um, and again, uh, for residents, to, you know, again, to stay vigilant, um, focusing on air filters in their homes, their vehicles, uh, but then also really ensuring that um, workers and staff who are outdoors and those who must be outdoors are protected with masks or have limited time uh, outdoors doing their work uh, and making sure that it's definitely not rigorous work uh, in this type of environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Phillips? For me, the big thing is reducing emissions and reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, 
we know that, and this, this goes to part of John's question, we know that because of the isotopic signature of the majority of carbon in the atmosphere, that it's coming from fossil fuels. It matches um, the carbon isotopes that primarily make up those fossil fuel-based products. So we know that burning those is what's driving increasing carbon dioxide concentrations in our atmosphere. So we really need to reduce those emissions to limit um, the progression of climate change. Mm. But I think there are two additional things we need to do on top of that. I think we need to help communities become resilient to the impacts that we are experiencing now mm. and that we know are going to continue. And we also need to hold fossil fuel companies accountable who understood, as your caller said, understood the impacts of these products decades ago, but lied to the general public and and led a campaign to sow uncertainty and doubt about climate science, which is part of the reason um, that we're in the place we are today. Mm. And so, you know, I think it's important to, yes, reduce emissions, help communities become resilient, but also hold these bad actors accountable for the harms that their products are causing. Yeah. Okay, uh, Dr. Carly Phillips and Christina Floyd, great to have both of you here to help our listeners understand what is going on with the air outside. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we are going to keep talking about life here in the state of Michigan, but we're going to pivot to Congress and one of our congressional representatives, Debbie Dingell, who is trying to enact a new piece of legislation to promote gun control and gun accountability. Really interesting subject uh, that is not in the headlines right now, but is nonetheless quite important. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social 313-577-1019 and you can go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. fallen out of the news cycle. Gun deaths still dominate much of American life. They are both a big part of the homicides and the suicides that define the gun problem that we have in America. And while the Michigan legislature has made some recent strides to try to have an effect on those gun deaths and on gun possession and safety, Congress has not really been able to do much on this front. But there are some members of Congress who are still working to keep the public safer from firearms. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is one of those people, and she has recently proposed allowing the Consumer Product Safety Commission to regulate firearms, a really interesting idea that would bring greater accountability to gun manufacturers. To talk about this, we've got Congresswoman Dingell here. Debbie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, it is great to be with you. Yes, it's great to have you here in person as well. Um, Even though... Going out and, uh, you know, trying to get places like this is not the safest thing to be doing right now. Um, But let's talk about the Consumer Safety Act uh, and why you why, first of all, gun manufacturers have an exemption uh, to that act and why you would remove that exemption in this legislation. Okay, I want to be really clear. I do not consider this a form of gun control. People hear the word gun control. Now, (laughs) there are things that I do support that I would talk to you about. Uh, very directly. But this bill is about making sure that guns are safe. Mm-hmm. They are the only consumer product in this country that is not subject to a review. Or if there is something unsafe about the product, uh, that it cannot be recalled, that m- manufacturers cannot be held accountable for ensuring that people are safe. And there is actually a gun on the market now that has killed people, that w- is locked. Even when this lock is on, no one touches the trigger. It is going off accidentally. And no one has the jurisdiction to require the manufacturer to do something about it, to require it to be recalled, to put out a notice to all of its purchasers Mm -hmm. that it is not safe. So all I'm saying is it should be subject to 
any other rules and laws for safety that consumer products are in the United States. And quite frankly, it was my husband, who I loved but disagreed with on this subject, as you well know, uh, who initially, and I think that when I did this before he died, mm-hmm. uh, I started this, <coughs> excuse me, I am one of the people that yeah. was outside for hours yesterday, <laughs> right. yeah. um, uh, said times have changed. And I think that people were concerned that when, uh, that this could have been used as a form of gun control years ago, there was a great deal of debate as I've looked into it and read it about should the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms do it, consider it, and everybody was working, nothing happened, and it was kept from happening. I simply believe that, like any other product, I have fought for other products to be uh, lawn darts mm-hmm. for children, mm-hmm. for automobiles, that guns should not be exempt from that kind of, of oversight. So, so gun manufacturers, of course, fear that this kind, opening them up to this kind of responsibility or liability will bring a, a raft of lawsuits that uh, that would affect their business. Right? They're not just concerned. I think about uh, faulty products. They're concerned about the, the death that's associated with guns and that they could ultimately be held consumer, you know, held liable under under consumer laws for for that. How how do you answer that? So just as the automobiles uh, companies are worried and trial lawyers work in terms of is the automobile company liable if a driver hits somebody is drunk driving? No, they're not. And this bill would be written so it would be about keeping the product safe, that it does not malfunction, that it does not have a defective product. It needs to be written, it is written, like any other consumer product in this country. Yeah. So uh, what's the likelihood that this gets through a Congress who that's divided, first of all, and you're in the chamber that's controlled now by by Republicans, you do have a Democratic president, but but not all Democrats agree on things like this. So so give me a sense of the reaction from your colleagues. Well, last year, I think I got more attention last year. Uh, even the speaker was unaware that this was there. There was discrement. Among, I'm not going to lie among my Democratic colleagues <laughs> as to uh, whether the consumer product safety should have jurisdiction over this. Could they handle it? But I think it's an education process like it is with any bill. And I have Republicans who are unaware of it. I think we have to make sure it does not become subject to all of the rhetoric, all of the extreme passion and emotions about anything gun-connected. And when you just go to the stark reality that there's a consumer product on the market that has killed people because of a safety defect, people say, well, maybe we should be looking at this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you, whenever I talk with you about guns and, and gun control, I, I'm always really aware that this is not just a policy issue for you. It's a, it's a personal issue. And I, I always want to give you the space to, to talk about what this means uh, to you, uh, not just your relationship with, with John, who was a, a, a very strong advocate of the second amendment and a, and a hunter uh, but also your 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 family and and your your growing up and and the way that guns and access to guns has kind of shaped your sensibilities i think that i'm one of the people that is able to see both sides mm-hmm. of this issue better than many i was married to a man for almost 40 years that i loved with my whole heart and soul yes he was on the nra board of directors, which no Republican can even imagine in this this day and age. And quite frankly, until the day he died, he slept with a gun under his pillow. He was a responsible gun owner, and I felt safe living with him. Having said that, I lived with a man that should not have had access to guns. And I think, you know, for years, I tried to think of how do you keep guns out of the hands of people that should not have them. Mm -hmm. Um, This was your father. This was my father. It is not always easy to talk about this. I never know what I'm going to say until I say it. But for those that don't know, my father was a drug addict, had a prescription drug problem. Nobody knew or understood what opioids were in those days. Probably had other mental, was bipolar or um, 
you know, we didn't talk about mental health issues in those days either. But I kept my parents from killing each other. I got in the middle of a fight and kept those guns. We hid, hid in closets. We're sure that we were going to die. We knew what it was like to be scared, to pray to God and say, please let me live another day. Call the police and ask for help and have nobody come. Um, I, I have lived in a household with a responsible gun owner, and I have lived in a household with a man that should not have had a gun. And these are very challenging, difficult issues. And I wish sometimes people could take deep breaths and just listen to both sides. And how do you ensure that responsible gun owners can still have their guns and people that shouldn't have guns not have guns? I think that's a really important kind of point to pause and and stop and think about. You believe that there is a point somewhere in the middle that we could reach where people are not under the threat of of violence that they live under today, but that gun owners and gun advocates would also be able to 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 do what they want to do and 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 express you know, uh, indulge what is a constitutional right in this in this country. You think that that it's possible to reach that point? I, I, I would like to. I wish we could take all of the emotion out of it. I do think we have a real problem, and the mental health advocates don't like to talk about this, but we have a problem with mental health issue. We haven't wanted to talk about it. There's a taboo on it. In suicides by guns are up. They're too available. We need to talk about our kids and our kids who think they need to have it to defend themselves. How many guns are on the streets? How many young people we're seeing killed in America? We need to figure out why these mass shootings. I, I wish that instead of pointing fingers or not, we could just talk about it and really try to figure out how do you protect all people's rights? Doesn't a student in a high school or a grade school someone shopping in a mall or going to a movie theater have rights to think they can go there and be safe? Um, I, I also want to talk just a little about what's going on with the air. Uh, you know, the, 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 the inability to walk outside without choking on the air is, is something I'm not sure I ever thought we would uh, experience the way that we are right now here in, in Detroit. Of course, you have been an environmental advocate for a really long time. And, of course, John was uh, maybe the original, <laughs> uh, you know, environmental advocate in Congress. Um, uh, what do we do about this? How should we be thinking about it? Well, I'm – look, I called my asthma doctor um, this morning because I was outside most of the day. It was Eads. I eat my barrack to my friends, and I was outside most of the day yesterday. And as you can hear in my voice sure. and my cough, I've had a real increase. Uh, and I don't normally have. I don't have to take the albuterol. I do the preventative stuff. Um, I, I, what is exasperating this is the wildfires, we all know, which unfortunately we're seeing more of. We think of ourselves in the Midwest that we're not going to that's a California problem or somebody else's problem and not ours. And all of a sudden we realize it's ours. And not only is it happening in Canada, but it's happening up north. It's happening um, the, the dry weather and it's going to increase. Uh, as So this is, I mean, we can see it. I saw it in Washington when I was there. You couldn't see the Washington Monument at days and I'm uh, seeing it here. And it's going to get worse. Temperatures are going to get higher. We have life-threatening temperatures in many states around uh, the country. We've got to figure out a whole lot of issues here. And we are, I think, in Detroit. I've been working very hard on air emissions, water. I mean, water is not the problem right now on the asthma and mm -hmm. the air that we are all breathing. Last night, I had a EPA and Eagle and the Attorney General at a town hall on the Gelman Plume. There's some... We live in an area, we live in the best area in the country. I think the heartland is the heart of America. We have four seasons, but we are a manufacturing area. We're the backbone of the American economy, and we've got to get to more clean technology. So, And global climate is real, and 
reality is hitting us here in Michigan right now with these wildfires and giving us a glimpse of what more is going to happen if we don't address yeah. it. Uh, we've only got about a minute left, but you have colleagues who have been busy trying to remove the teeth from the EPA, uh, some of them right here in, in our state. I wonder if you've heard from them about what they think now. I mean, sometimes it takes uh, an extreme event to, to make people focus uh, differently on something. Have you heard from anyone who, who's saying, wait a second, this, maybe we're doing the wrong thing? I talk to a lot of people. I'm not naming names, but we all have to accept the fact that this is real and none of our constituents are liking it and that they're people that are having real health effects. And how do we work together to address it? Well, let's hope. Let's hope they're paying attention and that uh, we get someplace because uh, this is this is ridiculous. It's it's almost July 4th and uh, we may not be able to be outside the way that uh, that we normally are. Okay, Debbie Dingle, it is always great to talk with you. It's always great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming in for Detroit Today. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are likely going to be talking about the decision that the U.S. Supreme Court is set to make on affirmative action and what consequences that will have here in Michigan. The justices are going to gather in about two minutes in Washington, and I imagine that this is the last day of opinions, and so that opinion should be among them, and we will talk about it tomorrow if it is uh, in that uh, batch. If not, we will We'll have other great programming for you here on the show. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>